0: Father, we thank you for Andy. We thank you for the blessing that he is to us. And we just ask that uh, as he brings your word to us now, that, Father, we would hear from you afresh, that we would hear something new, and that it would impact our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two switches. do apologize. So they find this scroll in the temple, probably Deuteronomy. They read it. They've gone so far away from God, they're surprised by every word and they surprised by their own law and this kind of kind of changes Josiah that he like kind of he just wanted to make the country better but now he wants to bring the country right back to God following the law and he leads this incredible revival leads the people closer to God not just in Judah but in what used to be Israel he tears down idol places of idol worship he tears down Places that worshiping God right, he absolutely changes the country, um, and a country that seemed to be under judgment of exile then was kind of had a an air a time of reprieve, a time of mercy when Josiah was ruling. Yet, his sons and grandson that reigned after him were very different to Josiah. Josiah. And as soon as Josiah died, so did the revival, and his sons were terrible. And if you read the prophets that are written at the time, like Habakkuk or Zephaniah, they made it quite clear that the the king was leading this great revival and was changing the nation, but in reality, the hearts of the people were still far, far away from God. And as soon as Josiah dies, the real Judah comes out again, not the one that he led. So why does that happen? As I was thinking about it more, it's... I started thinking about experiences versus life. Revivals are amazing, but they seem to be a lot about experiences. People experience something that changes them. We have, like, you have talks of, like, large, kind of spirit filled meetings, thousands of people worshipping God together. Miracles happening, life-changing experiences, sudden dramatic changes in culture, um, and people are caught up in this great big experience that changes their lives and makes a a genuine difference in their lives, but everyone's caught up in this big experience. They meet Jesus and they're forever changed. Yet the great heights of these experiences never seem to last long. Josiah's revival lasted Josiah's life. Afterwards, it went. The Welsh revival was only actually barely a year long. Normal normal life gradually takes over. Normal life overwhelms the great experiences, even though they're so large. Um, the big events don't become a part of lifestyle, and they fade away. And I think this is not just true for revivals of the church. I think it's true for our own personal revivals. How many times have you gone to some conference or some big meeting or had something dramatic happen in your life? You suddenly get closer to God. Your life is transformed. You look at the world differently. Your relationship with God is suddenly amazing. Your relationship with people around you is suddenly amazing. And it's all wonderful. You're all fired up. And then the next week happens, then the next week, and the next week, and the next week. And normal life gets back in. Now, you may have genuinely changed because of that experience. And you'll never be the same again. But you're not that person you were just as you had the experience. That doesn't last, does it? There is a change, but it's not that huge radical change it seemed to be at first. normal life seems to pull us back down to earth. It's amazing how quickly we forget, individually and as a church. And I think, if, as you look at this, if it teaches one thing, normal life beats big experiences every time. <laughs> no matter how big the experience, no matter how amazing it is, normal life wins in the end. <laughs> if there's a competition between a big experience... And normal life, normal life always seems to win. So perhaps that's why revivals aren't maintained. Because because maybe the mistake is focusing on the experience and not making the truth of the experience become a part of normal life. Because if they became a part of normal life, then that's more likely to be lasting. Because it's more powerful and it lasts longer. And it's probably more influential too. Because if we if we take the truth of what we learn in these big experiences and actually make it a part of normal life, then they'll continue to change us. Or they should. <laughs> And they should then continue to influence those around us. And then the idea of passing on the baton, passing on what we've learned, becomes easier. Because you're not trying to pass on a great big experience. You're passing on normal life. And that's far more easier to do. And I think if we have a life that's revived in this way then that also becomes more attractive. If this truth is so powerful it changes normal life then people I think will be more drawn to that than just the big experience than just the life changing amazing thing but then fades away after a a year or two. Over these last few weeks we've looked at many of these truths of revival, many things that revival brings out in the church or brings us back to in the church. We've looked at the Bible, we've looked at examples of the, in the Old and the New Testament of revivals in Israel and in the church. Um, you know, One of thing that always comes up with revivals as an example is prayer. Um, prayer seems to be the heart of every revival movement. Um, But I suppose then you have the big experience prayer versus normal life prayer. The revival big experiences, you have all night prayer meetings or prayer meetings that go on for days or um, groups of people that pray solidly for years and years and years until something happens. But then that's not going to happen all the time. So how then do we take the truth of the importance of prayer that we see in these revival stories and make them a part of our lives? And I was thinking about this, and, well, then prayer and all these other things need to become as ordinary as cooking a meal or doing the laundry or driving your car. It's not so exciting, (coughs) Maybe the key is actually taking the exciting experiences and making them mundane, (laughs) making them ordinary so that we do them. I was thinking, you don't wait until you're passing out from hunger to go to the kitchen and make a meal. You make breakfast, you make lunch, you make dinner every day. But sometimes we treat prayer and these other things like We don't actually get on our knees until something desperate happens. (laughs) It's not until we're starving that we make a meal. Whereas in reality, you make a meal every day so that you're not starving. And so maybe prayer should be like that with us. And I am very much preaching to myself right now. um, that, That we should have a breakfast, dinner, lunch attitude to prayer, not a help me, I'm starving, I need food attitude to prayer. But that would, that would also be true of the other things we've looked at, about the importance of unity that comes out in revival, about the focus of the Holy Spirit or the call to holiness, repentance. Um, you know, We've also looked at the fact that the knowledge that God is with us. He's Emmanuel. He's with us. Um, the presence of God being with us and all these other things that we've looked at over the last few weeks. And when I was thinking more about this kind of big experience versus normal life, I thought about um, Paul, not Paul at the back, but the Apostle Paul, um, his life. Because that's a, that's a life of both dramatic big experiences and normal everyday life. Um, He begins his Christian walk very, very dramatically with big experiences. Like, he has the original Damascus Road experience. Um, Jesus literally reveals himself to him and blinds him and then heals him from the blinding he gave him. Um, He has this incredible experience. And it utterly transforms in life. He goes from someone who's persecuting the church to someone who becomes a part of the church and drives the church forward. But I think with Paul, he doesn't have a kind of big experience and then normal life gets in the way and drags him back again. What Paul seems to do is take what he learns from the not big experience and actually make it normal life. The truth that he learnt is a part of him. And I think one of the amazing things that you read about Paul, when we focus so much on being humble and about humility, Paul always says, follow me. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's like, I, I've got, I have the truth. Follow me. Follow my example. Do what you see I'm doing. Timothy, follow me. Learn. Watch. Well, throughout his letters, he's not shy about saying, I'm following Jesus. Therefore, follow me. Which I think is a pretty really good example. Um, because he knew the truth of the gospel was an everyday part of his life. And you get this big, huge experience at the beginning of his Christian life. But with Paul, you don't get D- Damascus Road experience, life-changing experience, and then suddenly, full of this amazing energy, he has this high on fire for God, he then goes out and changes the world. That doesn't happen. You learn from Acts and Galatians that 14 years passes between his dramatic, big experience and the beginning of his missionary journeys 14 years no one's quite sure what he was doing in those 14 years or even where he was I think there's some bit I think in Galatians that he says he was in Arabia for a while but we don't know for how long Um, many people think he spent 14 years unlearning everything he'd learned in his life so far And actually, 14 years going through the Old Testament, looking for Jesus, (laughs) and putting together everything that he was going to then base the rest of his preaching and ministry on. Um, He had a lot to unlearn. He had a lot to re-examine and change the way he thought about everything he knew. And so it seemed it took him 14 years to do that. (laughs) Um, I don't know. He might have been doing other things. We don't know. Acts is very selective. But then you see, when he does emerge from these fourteen years and begin his missionary journey, we don't see someone who has a dramatic, like Damascus Road-style experience every day of his life. Of course, healing, incredible experiences are a part of his ministry. Like he, there's that guy that fell out the window that he prays for that he brings back to life. Many people think, actually, that Paul did die during one of his beatings and was brought back to life. Um, You know, he had miraculous experiences. But most of his ministry is actually just normal. Um, It is everyday life that attracts people to Jesus. It's his everyday words. He speaks in his letters of how all those other things, the great experiences of life, all of his Jewish heritage, everything that's happened to him is nothing in compared to knowing Jesus, just the normal knowing Jesus. Um, one of my favorite bits about this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In that chapter, you have kind of two extremes, I think, of Paul's life. On one hand, you have something incredible and miraculous. He talks about how he's had visions of heaven, and he's seen heaven in a vision, incredible things that he's not not even allowed to talk to people about. It was so incredible. So you have this incredible, miraculous, visionary experience. And on the other hand, he says, but I've got this fawn in the flesh, and it won't go away. And I constantly pray for God to heal me, but God seems to say no. So on one hand, you have a man who has an incredible vision and experience, but then the other guy who just won't get healed, who's got something that stops him, that is wrong with his body, it seems, that God doesn't heal. So you have two experiences, the miraculous and the mundane, the normal, that he lives with. Um, but, of course, God may not have healed him personally, but then God uses him to heal other people, and that doesn't get in the way. Um, everywhere Paul went, that his Jesus-focused lifestyle made a difference, changed people. Sometime, that was dramatic ways. He seemed to cause riots wherever he went. Um, he was beaten. He was dragged before um, Roman and Jewish officials. But most of the stories are about normal things, mostly it's speaking to people. It's writing letters to people, his friends. It's going to people's houses and talking to them. It's going to synagogues and preaching. It's meeting people in certain places. It's the normal everyday life. And then everywhere he goes, churches, communities spring up after him. People who want to follow his example. Taking that title of the, this morning he, the Paul he took up the baton on, on the road to Damascus and he then spent 14 years making the baton a part of it. before he then went out to start passing it on to other people people like Timothy Timothy was one of those people who sees in Paul something that he could be And Timothy is one of his closest followers who copies Paul, who follows Paul, who learns from Paul's teaching and life. And so much so that in Philippians, Paul describes Timothy as the best I have. There's nobody like him. There's no one like Timothy who puts Jesus' interest and other people's interest in front of his own. And one of the most moving experiences, um, glimpses of this relationship is right at the end, in, the letter, in his second letter to, letter to Timothy. Paul writes this letter as he's in prison, waiting to die. Um, it's a different one from his other prison letters where he knows he might get released. This one it's like, no, I'm going to die. And so he writes this letter to the guy who's basically become like a son to him over his life and ministry. Paul writes how he's ready to go. He's run the race, he's fought the good fight, he's ready to now go and be with Jesus. But he also talks to Timothy about passing it on. About Timothy to also continue Paul's work, to live like he had lived to take the baton and run with it. Um, And I want to read you a bit of it. The more you read of Paul's letters, you realize this guy liked writing lists. There are lists everywhere in his letters. And this is one of his lists. Um, A list urging Timothy to continue the lifestyle he learned from Paul. And this is 2 Timothy 3... 10 to 4, verse 5. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a goodly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you've been equated with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves, teachers to suit their own passions, and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Do you have these little bunch of lists that Paul gives of this is the life you have to lead, Timothy. This is the normal everyday Christian life, um, which unfortunately includes suffering and persecution. Um, But it has all this. This This is the way you need to live. Follow my example. Let all these truths you've learned become a part of you, that you just do them. Faith, patience, love, steadfastness, based on God's word, Reproving, teaching, correcting, loving, enduring suffering, evangelizing, fulfilling God's ministry. And so I think it's through men like Paul and Timothy, through the 12 apostles and the others in the early church, that the big experience, the big revival that Jesus and the apostles started, if you like, it didn't fade. It didn't fade away because all that Jesus taught and all that the apostles taught after him became a part of people's lives. It wasn't just the big healings, it wasn't just the big experiences. It was normal. The gospel became normal. The gospel was everyday life for these people. So it didn't fade away, the church grew. The church continued. Other people took up that everyday, normal Christian life. It became a part of them, and they passed it on. But of course, even the incredible truth of the gospel, I think, sometimes um, can become a bit too normal. The church over the centuries have taken for granted who they are, what they know, and what has been passed on to them. And then from so from time to time, God reminds them of who they are. I think that's what revivals are. It's when God comes down, stirs up the church to remind them a bit of what they're supposed to be like. The revivals, the awakenings, the reformations, whatever you want to call them throughout history, always be seen to God bringing the church back to something. Something they've forgotten. Or something they're taking for granted, or something they're not doing that they should have been doing. So again, the revivals focus on prayer, because they remind the church that they are in relationship with God, that they need to talk to him, <laughs> that God needs that God will talk to them. This is a two-way conversation here. God want, they should listen to God's voice, God wants to speak to them so they can follow His ways but also that God is interested in what they have to say. God wants to hear the depth, the the cries of their heart and their pain. Revivals focus on scripture. And revivals and reformations come which bring the church back to the foundation of scripture, of where they get their truth from. The, The truth of God's covenants with both Israel and the church, with humanity and the history of it who he is, who we are, the gospel, God's ways, and how he wants us to follow them. And above all, of course, the Bible shows us Jesus. Revivals focus on the Holy Spirit. So God wants to remind the church that he's in them, that he's a part of them, that it's his power that they work on, his guidance that they follow. And that their job is to bring his presence to a world world that needs it so much. Revivals focus on unity. God reminding the church again that they are one in Christ. That their role is to unite, to bring peace and reconciliation in the world, not division. Revivals focus on holiness. Reminding the church they may be a part of this world, but they are not of it. But they are different. They are meant to be different. Holiness, in the simplest way, is being different. God is holy because he's very, very different. <laughs> and we are meant to be different too. Revivals, of course, focus on repentance. Reminding the church the seriousness of their sin but also the power of repentance and the wonder that is forgiveness. So the church can actually really preach the message of forgiveness if the church itself knows forgiveness. So in the end, our revival's just God getting our attention so he can remind us who we are, so that we can continue to live like Christ, so that our lifestyles can be based on those truths that are that the revival remind us of, that we, our lives are ones of unity, of prayer, of holy of focusing on the Holy Spirit, of bringing God's presence to the world, of repentance, of holiness, and all these things that we've looked at. I think re- the experiences of revival, teach us many great truths but even greater is when those truths become a part of normal life become normal (laughs) when when revival becomes normal (laughs) when we live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit based on God's word lives of prayer, of unity with our Christian brothers and sisters lives of holiness lives of repentance and lives full of the presence of God. Amen. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord. The incredible privilege that we have being your church. And we ask for forgiveness when we forget who we are and what you have made us. And I thank you that you are so full of grace that you remind us and you do pour your spirit on your church in order to remind them who they are, in order to bring them back to where they are supposed to be, to their true identity in you. Um, But I want to pray that we don't need revivals. I want to pray that we are so much full of your presence and so much full of your truth that we don't need to be reminded. That our everyday lives can reflect who you are our everyday lives can draw people closer to you, that we leave revived lives, and that we revive the lives of others around us as we walk closer and closer to you. Amen.